This week, in light of the ongoing debates and discussion over the impact of generative AI on work, society and humanity, I'm publishing a re-edit of an interview I did in 2019 with John C. Havens, the Executive Director of the IEEE's Global Initiative on AI Ethics and also their, their Sustainability Practice Lead. John's a highly respected thought leader on artificial intelligence and ethics and is author of Artificial Intelligence and Hacking Happiness. Long before AI entered our mainstream discourse, John was already working on some of the big ethical questions. Now, although this was recorded in 2019, the issues we discuss are arguably more pertinent today than they were back then. And in the short of the normal interview, we cover a lot, including the negative externalities of technology, what we define as metrics of success for AI, the limits of exponential growth and innovation, finding more human alternatives to GDP, prioritizing human and ecological well-being, personal data monetization, control and privacy, the changing economic paradigm in a purpose-driven world, and John shares his vision for a more sustainable future society. Now, over to John. Can we jump back just to understand where the arc went from, like I say, the stage and screen to you ending up becoming an expert and passionate in the areas of technology and well-being? Because, you know, if you look to your LinkedIn, you probably go back and say, how on earth did that intersection happen? Well, I was just saying to a friend before I came here at lunch, I was in PR and that jump happened because after acting, I did a lot of um, actors roles where I would write scripts. I was often hired as like the funny guy. And for industrial films, a lot of industrial films that were forced to watch in HR, like Bob, don't talk to Susan that way and don't touch her. <laughs> Those horrible things, like a lot of times I'd be hired and they were pretty good. Um, Comedically, I would end up making jokes that the, the people would say, well, put that in the script. And so I got paid to write scripts. And then I got into writing business articles. I landed a job with about.com. I was their first guide to podcasting. So I learned that was in like 2004 or five. So I learned how to do business writing, kind of how-to writing. And then a friend offered me a, a job in PR in New York. I said, I don't know PR. And they said, that's okay. They don't know social media. And I went from VP to EVP in about a year and a half. And then when I left PR, a lot of it was because my dad had passed away. And so I think the internal jump happened because I missed and still really missed my dad. And um, his work was the manifestation of how do you show people they have worth. So I fell in love with positive psychology, which is an mm -hmm. empirical science. It's the extension of psychoanalysis, according to Martin Seligman and the Barbara Fredrickson who created it. But if you get to know the science of positive psychology, it's very powerful and it very much resonates with a lot of religious and similar non-religious traditions, mindfulness and, and mindfulness people tend to focus a lot on, but the harder things are things like altruism, gratitude. Gratitude's very hard because we are trained to think we only have worth once we do something versus gratitude is saying where you are right now today, stop, pause, who or what do you have? Maybe it's the air you breathe. Maybe it's the food you eat. Anyway, so the jump then at that point when I lost my dad was like, I love technology. I'm a geek. I know how to write business stuff. I've done biz dev for years. I love bringing people together. I've run major events. A thousand people came to one and there were 200 speakers. So organizing large groups of people and connecting like you were saying mm -hmm. you like to do. And all these different skill sets kind of synthesize into one core thing, which is if I can let people know that they have worth. And if I can encourage them to identify their values, 
so that amidst all these beautiful technologies, they can still introspectively say, I know this is why I'm here and I have worth. That's really the core of what is also now, in one sense, quite strangely, because IEEE being an engineering driven organization, I'm not an engineer. I am able to do all these different, a lot of my skills intersect um, to help drive this work, which I'm again, really honored to do. It's really interesting. It couldn't have happened. Timing's everything because 20 years ago, wouldn't have been an issue. We weren't facing the onset of AI and robotics and the question over our, our future humanity and, and our sense of worth as, as individuals, as frail you know, human beings. So it, it is fascinating. The other thing that makes me think about it is just uh, we interviewed Michael Ventura, who's written a book called Applied Empathy, which is a lovely book and it's worth, mm. worth getting your hands on. But there is a, a strong element of empathy in, in what you're talking about to be able to understand and connect those different constituent parts, those different stakeholders. There needs to be someone that's a connector that can understand the imperatives and the, the needs and the, the challenges that they face to embrace the changes that have to happen to allow us to move forward without <laughs> um, encountering some form of significant existential risk. Because you mentioned you, you've written the three books, and I've got quite a few questions just around the, the book you wrote, Artificial Intelligence. So maybe we could just, just run through them and just see where the conversation goes. Great. First thing, there was a bit in your book where you referenced a, an author who'd written a book, something robot, and said there's three, in the first paragraph or the first page, he talks about there's three possible scenarios for humanity with robots. One about them worshipping us, one where we are controlled, and one where they make us extinct. Because I've read this and heard this on a number of occasions, these three scenarios, that doesn't bode well for humanity. It is more of a sort of a dystopian vision of where our future might lie. Rise of the robots is the rise book. of the robots. That's what, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think the reason I love his work so much, he's very researched, he's very pragmatic. And I think a lot of, is it okay to swear? Yeah. There's no bullshit, mm -hmm. which is the thing that, that I, now I will say, because it's been a few years and since I've written the book, any scenario that I'm going to say with the word robots, just replace humans mm -hmm. doing it. Yeah. Right. Because there's this misconception, not from you, but you know, that this sort of, uh, until robots might attain consciousness, which is a different conversation and something that right now today, I do not personally believe that robots have consciousness or algorithms have consciousness. And that's largely based on the academic uh, and expert community that I work with. I also think why it's dangerous to focus too much on when that might happen is that we avoid the here and the now. And so to those, the points of those, those three things, mostly I think the big question we need to ask ourselves is, are the metrics of success for how humans deem societal success ones that we want to stick with? Because then whether it's robots or algorithms, they're simply manifestations of the decisions that we're either overtly making or de facto letting them happen. And I bring up that because a lot of my work both at IEEE and for the past number of years has been to say, what are the global metrics of success where everyone can point to, this is something we all agree is success. It's not just money, right? Because we all need money, but um, GDP in terms of gross domestic product, I think people think that things just sort of appeared, <laughs> you know, <laughs> economics happened and they're sort of, that's it. And what's fascinating in conversations like this one we're having, which is awesome, by the way is how often, albeit global 
all around the world. Like I just came back from China a couple of weeks ago. I go to Egypt in a couple of weeks. So it's not just in the West, but you can talk about like, you know, so many conversations are when will robots maybe have consciousness, which again, I try to avoid largely because they're a distraction from the here and now. They're important, but anyway, when you bring up issues of money, it's fascinating how often you hear the same phrases. Don't mess with innovation. We can't hinder innovation. And my answer is why is more money often synonymous with innovation? Why isn't increasing human well-being or environmental well-being or caregiving or loving others well? Why is that not the top priority? And where people are like, hey, as long as we make enough money to pay the bills. And of course, people should be rewarded for value that they bring. Or if you invest in a company, you know, you're a shareholder, great that they should be rewarded. But exponential growth and going back to your thing about three mm -hmm. things, there's only one, I say this a lot when I've talked recently, the actual five words that will end humanity, did we hit our numbers? Yeah. Those are the five words. Because every quarter where there's a legal obligation for any humans to say whatever glorious work we're doing, the main metric or the only metric of success for how we make our decisions, not just growth or profit, but exponential growth, matching that with these amazing tools that by definition are autonomous and intelligent that can increase speed, that can replicate skills. You're matching what we used to call in PR land a KPI, key performance indicator, mm, yeah. right? With tools that can maximize speed and growth. That's when we're screwed because people are saying, look, all these great conversations, and this is what Martin talks about a lot in Rise of the Robots, kind of is the new bullshit thing, which is not anger against business or government, but is to say, until we change this one metric that says exponential growth is what we think societal progress is, everyone's going to be held to it. And all these conversations about jobs and stuff, they're still important and relevant. But at the end of the day, what people actually are going to be doing is replacing all jobs and replacing all human skills because that's the one thing that they're held accountable to. And it's so short-termist. Oh, yeah. It's funny, that makes me think of that Hemingway quote from, I can't remember what the, the book was. Um, so it's all things happen slowly, then all at once. Things happen slowly, then all at once. And it is that case that I think where so many people haven't got their eye on what's happening, the exponential sort of acceleration of these technologies and we are looking quarter by quarter, looking for opportunity in a, what's becoming a technological ar artificial intelligence arm race with no, as you say, no direction, no code of ethics, no sort of uh, detente <laughs> to compare it to um, nuclear days in the 60s and 70s when obviously there was another arms race. And it's potentially catastroph catastrophic for us. Well, yeah, and let me just say this, you know, Moore's Law, people talk a lot about Moore's Law, which yeah. is this idea that things increase exponentially. I just had this thought now, so I often will say that, at least in the last couple of years, I'll say similar things, but this is new, so tell me if this makes sense, which is Moore's Law also applies to things like depression. Moore's Law applies to things like the the negative ramifications to the environment, right? Meaning, not in the, it's not apples to apples, and when people are like, it's a different theorem, and like, I get it. But the point is, is that like depression, suicide, from a mental health status, these have been blaring sirens globally for the past two or three years, mm -hmm. according to the World Health Organization. This is not like, oh, it's a drag, it's a pandemic. Oh, no. And in terms of physical cost, in terms of hard ledger, look at that, what that costs, right? Some people make money from those things, but the point is, is that that cost 
and I'm a parent. So also when it comes to things like uh, suicide, um, I don't know how we could, uh, I don't want to be judgmental. I'm not talking about euthanasia when someone is elderly or sick. I mean, if our youth globally or anybody of any age, a, a genuine, not just a choice, but a sort of like kind of regular decision would be, this is in my wheelbox. I don't, I'm, I'm being very judgmental. I'm certainly just speaking for myself. I don't know how to live with that. Meaning I think it's easy to speak about kind of in a let's be cool. And if someone wanted to do that, that's their decision. I agree. I'm a parent. I know people who have lost kids to suicide. That is not where you come from. You live the rest of your life thinking I failed. Mm. I didn't love them well. So to not get negative, but to bring it positive, just because I want to make sure yeah. to be positive, the opportunity for the technology, right? Because one thing I want to be careful is, and this isn't what you were saying, but I don't want to frame AI is not the issue. The code is not the issue. It's why are we building this stuff and what is success? If success is look at all these great companies that are going to IPO, it's not that anyone there is a quote negative actor, whatever. I mean, unless they're building, you know, like whatever to kill yeah. people. It is to say as a society, we are still living by a statistical thing that Simon Kuznets created in the late forties at the Bretton Woods conference. By the way, I'm going next week is the 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods. Most people don't know about it, but that's where they galvanized things like the World Bank and the mm -hmm. IGF and, and funding, where those were the decisions at that point that said, this is what societal success is. And they gave it a number and a formula. Anyway, so the wonderful opportunity now is to say, what about increasing human and ecological well-being in unison, in tandem? If those can be the success factors for any AI that we build over the need to prioritize exponential growth. That is the way to go forward. I heard you talk and I've read about your perspectives on things like, I think you call it the gap, which is gratitude, altruism and purpose. And talk about that we need to move beyond wealth and productivity to look at purpose. Because you talked a lot about the importance of Kennedy talking about going beyond GDP. And it's funny, I spend a lot of time in the work I do with this global NGO talking about the importance of purpose. And I think what mm. we need to create is not GDP, but GPP, which is gross personal purpose. Mm. That we all identify, you know, taking your acronym of GAP, of gratitude, altruism and purpose. We need to have a measure for that. Now, maybe this is a nice way to segue into one of the things that I mean, there's so many layers to this and we could sort of, we could spend hours talking about this, but let's, let's pull it apart a little bit. One of the things that I, is a personal passion, both good and bad, is data. Coming from an advertising background where we collect, always were driven by collecting data on consumers to try and get them to change their behavior, to learn more about them, to be more insightful, to do personalized communication, because we all know that you're only one purchase away from happiness <laughs> and triggering that dopamine. But, you know, that's why I got out of advertising, just thinking there's got to be a better way than just continuing to create conspicuous consumption. But we don't recognize as consumers the power of our data. And we've got Google and Facebook that are monetizing it like you can never imagine. That it's just nothing on the, in history has ever been like it. And I had a conversation with an angel investor, number one angel investor a few weeks ago, um, Fabrice Grinder. And he's an investor in marketplace. And I said, don't you think there's an, an opportunity to create a, a data marketplace for consumers where we control our data, where it sits on a personal cloud, where we can determine which brands engage with us, which ones that we share the information with, and we become the recipients of the money. And he was like, nah, it's not going to happen. I don't know about that. 
I feel there's an opportunity, and I'd love your perspective on and whether that's a, something that you have ever have conversations about. Oh yeah, uh, two books ago, my book was called "Hacking Happiness: Why Your Personal Data Counts and How Tracking It Can Change the World." And with your background in advertising and marketing, and my background in PR, what we know is that the insights that come from tracking someone's data a lot of times gives us more insights into their lives than they may know about themselves. And that's not to sound devious. It just means if you don't know what you've eaten for the past six months, combined with your Twitter sentiment and whatever else, and you come back to somebody and say, you know, every time you tweet that nasty stuff, you also have frequently reported that you've just had sugar. Do you know that the sugar is probably making you angry and maybe you shouldn't tweet at three o'clock because I have data here, right? So something that's a, maybe not the best example, but the point is, is that we insights, right? The insights from data are, are so critical. And when they're mainly used to get us to buy stuff, it's such a shame to think about that that's, it's not a bad, bad thing, you know, unless it's manipulative and all that. But the short answer is we have to, have to provide, and I just had lunch about this and I mentioned this earlier today, I was doing an interview for Wired on this. We're actually creating a standard for IEEE, and I'm, I'm pitching it now because, by the way, it's, it's free to join the standards working group. You don't have to be a member of IEEE. Great if you want to join. But it's a, a working group focused on creating an algorithmic level terms and conditions for every human person. Now, all the things you just said, is it hard? Yes. Do consumers care about their data? Some do, some don't. Long story short is we are tracked from the outside in, and that's happening from government and business. And whether it's, quote, good or bad, it's contextual and all that type of stuff. But the point there is that we have to trust that whatever government or business is tracking us, that they're going to follow GDPR or whatever laws we mm -hmm. hope for. We're now in a place where, like I often, I've done a lot of research in augmented and virtual reality. We still sort of think the digital world is external, right? We all know like, well, my phone can track me, but you and I are talking with headsets and stuff, but we're in a physical room in New York. I've often been thinking Matrix or Minority Reportage for years that once augmented and virtual reality come into play, it simply just means that then all the stuff that's already happening with our data, we will see it and be immersed in it in new ways that will become very visual and visceral. So I say all this to say the need, not the potential opportunity, is when I say create a terms and conditions, it means every service that we are asked to click to accept their terms and conditions, we also need to be able to say, well, these are my terms and conditions. Otherwise, there is no actual parity between individuals and the externalities that track them. This gets geeky, and I'm, I talked about this this morning, and I talked for like 40 minutes, and I'm trying to get more soundbitey. But in one sense, like a dating app where you enter in hundreds of pieces of data about yourself, what you're really saying is these are my values, right? Mm -hmm. I am Jewish, I am gay, whatever else. And that identifies who a partner might be. This is to say, what are your values to identify how your data, when it's tracked, you simply are signaling back who you are. It's not just about privacy, meaning I don't want my data to be used for bad stuff. It's about signaling, this is who I am. So as an example, the phrase often comes up, what do you have to hide with privacy? My answer back is, what is ours to reveal? And I bring that up to say, look, picture this situation. A young person is gay, right? They know they're gay. It is up to them to come out, right? And please forgive my wild ignorance being straight cisgender if I'm saying something wrong, but my friends, I was an actor, I still am for, you know, for, for years. So I have many friends who are gay. 
how they explained it to me, uh, my friend Peter comes to mind, is it's obviously incredibly intimate. It's their business. And if there's technologies that could, you know, point at them and say, hey, based on your physical facial structure and mm. whatever else, you're gay. And someone else kind of steals their thunder, which is not even remotely the right way to say it. That I would assume would be devastating. Yeah. And it's not their place. And more importantly, what if the tech is wrong? The person gets to say, no, I'm gay. And I bring this up because if we don't have a place uh, where stemming from our identity, where we can prove I'm the only John Havens in the world, and then I project, these are my terms and conditions, we will lose agency pretty quickly. Meaning, picture this, I'll try to make this simpler. Our kids, young people, and all of us put on headsets to go into virtual reality. And we first go in and we put on the headset for a couple hours. I still know I'm John. I take it off because I go to the bathroom or eat a sandwich. Fine. Most people in immersive games today, there's 1.2 billion active gamers around the world. 50, 60, 70 hours a week are spent in-game. Think about now wearing augmented reality contact lenses or being in virtual reality. What we call physical reality now will in many ways for most of us be the place we spend the least amount of time. And think about the anxiety these, these gamers are going to feel when they come into the real world. Yes, and think about the anxiety that we should be, we should, meaning to your person who's like, I don't think whatever's going to happen. I don't see any answer, and this is for the past seven years thinking about this daily. Unless we have a technological means to state who we are in data, and then unless our rights, our terms and conditions, we're part of stating who that is, and there's both the outside in tracking and the inside out, then all the decisions about our data will always be made about us, period. Where we are right now, at least in the States, there's a lot of data I can't access. And then when you hear things like, well, we should put our data into a commons and, you know, let's cure cancer and put data over here. In theory, of course, yes, anything to cure cancer, awesome. But unless there's a, um, a choiceful technical way, like through a blockchain or smart contracts, where you know which data you're sharing and how, there is the certain, the agenda of saying, let me guilt you into sharing even more of your data so I can use it for my agenda versus, I can tell you about a company I work for that I think did this the right way. They set a precedent. This simply just has to happen. So we have the standard guy named Doc Searles. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Project VRM. Yeah. So yeah. Doc is the ideological, you know, leader for many of us in this, and he's got his book, Intention Economy, on this. The standard- a, I mean, it's a classic book. Yeah, and he's a friend, and yeah. he's the person that actually inspired that standards working yeah. group. So this is happening. It's happening around the world with a lot of people saying, let's not talk anymore about how hard this is going to be. And one thing also I tell people is like, with a human right, the right to agency for your data, which I believe it's a human right, other human rights, just because people may say, I don't think this human right is important. Does that mean you wouldn't protect it? Does that mean you wouldn't fight for it? The answer is no. And certainly also just because the economic system exists, people may say, I don't care about my data. I cannot look at my kids who are 16 and 14. I cannot look at young people and say to them, you know what? It was hard to think about how you'd be able to share your data in virtual and augmented reality. It was tough. And a lot of people, mainly from Silicon Valley, we're saying that consumers didn't care about their data, but the data I read from Pew Internet, Gallup, all these other places say that actually young people do care about their data. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, I'm not interested in telling people how they should care about their data, but I will fight tooth and nail that they will be able to 
think about it and share it as we move forward in the future. So these things, I feel like any, any of the litany of things people will say, which are fair, these things can be hacked. These things will be hard. The answer is sure. But guess what? The past 10 years, as you would know, all the external tracking from the outside in, the technology has been there for 10 years. You talk about loss of agency. If you think about even today, while wearable tech and the internet of things is nowhere near as all pervasive as it will become, we're outsourcing our agency, our decision-making, our who we date, what we eat, the steps we take. Now, a lot of this is positive, but a lot of it is also quite dark and black mirrorish. And I don't think, I think there is a, a movement, a, a, a certainly within the youth, a, a growing awareness of the, the risks and the darker side of what potentially could happen if it goes beyond that tipping point and there's no way back. So I think the work that you're doing is, is incredible to actually set those standards. So that sort of is the data element. What about the, the aspect of what we talk about, we talk about human rights and we talk, you talked about values. Why are value, values so important? in respect to artificial intelligence and the, the evolution of technology? Sure. I think when I first got in the space, it's easy to hear the word ethics and think morals, mm -hmm. right? The word yeah, morals. Absolutely. And you think about, let's judge the people making it. Let's judge the companies making it. Where the real understanding about a lot of the work we do, which is based on amazing leaders like Batya Friedman with value sensitive design, or dear friend, Sarah Speakerman, uh, she wrote her book, Ethical IT Innovation. And whether you call it participant design or any methodology where you're asking not, let's talk about the people making the tech, but you say, what are the end users? What are their values? And what's really tricky is when you build something, bias, by the way, is not necessarily evil, right? It's oftentimes a for negative, a synonym for negative, where bias is simply the paradigm of who you are. Mm -hmm. Recognizing it is like disclosing when you're a journalist, you know, hey, I got paid by this person to write this article, right? <clears throat> the disclosure, and I'll, I'll make another point about mm -hmm. disclosure in a second. Anyway, but you, would, you don't know how your device, how your AI system is going to be interpreted by the end user unless you ask the end user or your methodologies say how the end users use this. And a reason there's a lot of, you know, concern about like the, uh, you know, young men creating all the tech and all that stuff, which is valid, mm -hmm. is... When you say things like, our intentions are good, and I think this would be cool, or this technology will do all this great stuff, all those things may be true, but can't think of the right analogy, but it's like telling someone who you want to fall in love with, you're going to fall in love with me because of these reasons. And let's go, you're in love with me. <laughs> and the answer is, well, you sound great, but I'm right. And in one sense for, I'll push that analogy, it may not work. You know, devices, especially we haven't talked about yet, but voice assistants are pervasive in millions, if not billions of phones. These are already altering our consciousness. Phones and homes. Phones and homes. <clears throat> Deeply sort of without kind of, in one sense, asking permission. And I don't want to make it sound negative per se, except to say the sort of, uh, not guinea pig, because that makes it negative, but the sense of the uh, techno-utopian kind of, this will help people. And then the market directive of get it out without fully understanding how it's going to affect human agency and stuff. The, the other opportunity, which is what we're saying now, and, it, and again, I want to be clear not to demonize how that's happened, but now is a great time to say, because these voices, literal voices, are speaking to us in different 
accents. Mm -hmm. And it's great to say like, well, a lot of them are women and that's servile. It, that's a great question to, to ask about. Like, why is Siri female? And But did you see the, that someone developed the first gender neutral voice? Which is great. Which is fantastic. It's, yeah. it's great. But um, that's a great example of cool. Let's be choiceful because the people picking up the device or the people integrating with an algorithm, it has to be about them or else empathy, understanding others, kindness, you were saying, or even media, right? Marshall McLuhan, all that stuff. One to many, we know that what we're building is right for you. When the answer is you may have a good guess, and then also people like Steve Jobs and Apple, there's times where you won't necessarily say we did all this surveying. We just think this is going to transform the world. And here it is, right? Mm -hmm. I get that, you know, but when you look in like our, our book, Ethically Aligned Design, one of my, I love all the chapters, but one of my favorite chapters is embedding values into design. When you hear that phrase, there's a misconception that actual values will be instantiated in code or a physical morphology of a machine. Not at all. What it means is when you put a device in the presence of humans, how will their values be affected by that device? So a quick example is in a hospital. Um, if you have a care robot, a lot of times people are just thinking, well, I'm going to build this care robot and sell it to the hospital so the doctors can have a fast predictive whatever. That's only one or maybe two stakeholders, the hospital and the doctor. Then there's the nurses, which is palliative care. And then there's the patients. And then there's the patient's families. That whole ecosystem is a whole series of values where once you know, for instance, when patients are in a room, the robot should not speak at a certain level or else the robot may be, you know, like this patient has 14 days left to live and the, the patients are there. And this becomes a market opportunity without all these questions of, you know, let's get into utilitarianism versus the tunnel problem and all that stuff, which drives me batshit sometimes because it's making it very vague mm -hmm. versus saying, what are you building? Who's going to use it? Really take the time to ask before you build it, not just for harm, you're identifying innovation. Hey, we're going to have the only robot that is sensitive to all these stakeholders. We'll sell it that way. The world's most sensitive care robot. Right. And when it walks in a room, it takes a couple extra seconds, measures vocal sentiment. De -de 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 -de. There are 10 people here. Hi, are there family members here? That question is asked. Yeah, I'm so-and-so's father. Okay, doctor, I'll come back later. Boom. Right. How many levels of values now? I'm being very simplistic. And the chapter goes into a lot more specifics on that. You're, you're simply being kind of an emotional, intelligent, not the robot, the designer is doing that. I mean, when you hear people talk about um, artificial intelligence and the advance of technology, there's the, the, the utopian, the dystopian, the realists, and people that say, look, there's going to be a jobless society. We're going to need some form of universal basic income. But there are others that say, no, there's going to be plenty, just like the last industrial revolution. There'll be new jobs created. I find it interesting what you're describing there. And given that my partner in the podcast, Delane, is a UX designer, it feels like there's going to be a new, uh, the imperative to create a new type of designer one that is trained in ethics and values this way to be able to design the products of the future. My only worry and concern, and maybe you can allay my fears, is that how will we move at the speed to create these courses, to create this, this new type of training, to keep up with the pace of the development of these technologies in these companies, whether they be in China, in Germany, in the UK, or in Silicon Valley? Because it, the need is now. So how are you addressing that in either in your personal mission or maybe in your role as a, a representative IEEE and the people you're working with? 
Oh, there's a couple levels. I had the deep pleasure of meeting one of my heroes, uh, Joey Ito, three or four years ago at an Aspen conference on artificial intelligence. And at that event, uh, I was representing IEEE talking about our work. And I said a lot of the same things I'm saying here. I talked about well-being and the need to think about economics beyond just the technology. And it's not about the AI or the engineers, which I will say a lot, meaning of course it's about them, but it really is about the systemic aspect of what does society say is valuable? And if it's mainly exponential growth, then we shouldn't be pointing fingers at anybody. We should just be saying as a society, all of us look around the room and that person's from policy, that person's a tech developer, that person's a citizen. If we're all kind of saying, everyone nod their head, are we cool with societal progress is about exponential growth? Yeah, yeah. Then the future that we make, I think, me, John, that's utterly dystopian because it's also not working. Where I say not working, meaning that's where we are today. That is the ultimate still primary goal for everyone when the doors close and every quarter happens. You and I have this great conversation. How will things change? At a systemic level, I bring up Joey because MIT Media Lab, which he runs, they're doing amazing work on what's called extended reality. And uh, meeting him, we we talked then to this amazing guy named Konstantinos Karahalios, who's the managing director of the IEEE Standards Association. And we created something called the Council on Extended Intelligence. And we have three parts to the vision there. I'm executive director of that work as well as executive director of work at IEEE. But the, the hat with extended reality, that work, we talk about, oh, there's three parts to it. One is extended reality. I'll mention that in a second. Second is data sovereignty, what we kind of already covered. The third is well-being in terms of increasing human and ecological well-being as a marker, a goal of success for AI as well as society in general. But I bring up extended reality because things like universal basic income, all that type of stuff. Uh, long story short, I bring up the GDP again. The short answer is if we don't change the metrics of success, I don't see any motivation for businesses at some point to not replace every human job and skill. Yeah. I don't see any motivation. I think, uh, and I've had long discussions with friends of mine on this. Do I think new jobs will be created? Sure. But do I think at some point the doors are going to close and the answer, the question is going to come up, hey, that new job we created, emotional intelligence, yada, yada, some other cool title. Is there a way we can automate that to save money or make more money? Because I got to hit my numbers and I'm being pressured. When but then, you can't hit numbers when, there's, <clears throat> when you're having a, a never dwindling workforce of people that have no income to then buy the products that you're creating. Is it, it, there, there, there comes a zero sum game and a race to the bottom. That's, that's my hope, but so far, you know, uh, so speaking for myself here, not any other organization, mm, yeah. but I lived in New York City in 2008 where the, the mortgage crisis that happened, no one was punished. So I'm not here to be punitive, but the answer is also if things can happen and people know they can do them, I'm a parent, you know, like yeah. part of loving your child, you, not spanking them or anything, but is redirecting and saying, if you do that again, there's going to be consequences. So far there aren't. Um, there's a lot of systemic things that I bring this up to say in a great example, there are brands who I have so much respect for like Danone in Europe, which makes uh, Danone yogurt in the States yeah. and their corporate social responsibility. They've actually changed their legal structure yeah. to demonstrate a B Corp, a B Corp mm. which what they're showing is, and this comes from a Harvard business review mindset from 2011, Michael, I always forget his last name, but this idea of social innovation, right? long-term sustainability beyond a quarterly success model for a business comes from 
recognizing the sort of triple bottom line and saying, to your point earlier, if those people aren't there to buy our stuff in five or 10 or 15 years, or they're dwindling for them, their ability to buy, this becomes much more short-termist. Mm -hmm. It's next year or the year after that we won't have anyone to buy our stuff. So then part of maintaining the fact that you'll have those consumers, those people to buy your stuff is making sure that there are jobs, et cetera, et cetera. However, again, from a separate standpoint, it's these first brands, these first governments that are standing up together saying, we have to do this together because, you know, however many, if there's 50 of those organizations and three of them do the Danone thing and the others are still like, you know, saying, maybe even supporting it, like, that sounds like a great idea, but then they still close the doors and go short-term exponential growth, then we're still screwed. And the hope here is that the very positive kind of changing of a paradigm level of, uh, of these economic and other systems is sort of a sense of, for me, especially with the planet and with, with young people and mental health, yeah. it's like looking at suffering, all that empathy, looking at whatever else, and also just kind of moving past the, I'm not trying to put down an IPO or companies doing awesome stuff and getting rewarded, but that sort of exponential thing means, of course, the 6% will continue to get the majority of the wealth, the mm -hmm. benefits. And that means, can we just stop pretending that we actually do want to help other people if the, the doors close and the legal pressures that companies feel? Because it's not fair, by the way, to only point at companies and say, you're the bad guys. Not at all. Same with the engineers. This is a societal thing to no, say. I totally agree. Do we want to change this stuff or not? Yeah. I think the term I read that you used was general progress indicators. We need to look at what is societal progress. I'm going to pause there and get into the quickfire questions. And maybe what we can do um, another time is uh, circle back and talk about some other questions because there's a ton that we haven't covered off that I'd love to get into. Um, but let's see how we get through the quick fire questions. Yeah, I'd, okay? I'd be honored to come back. This yeah. has been a wonderful conversation. But also, can I say one thing before we get to yeah. the fast fire is just to give a positive vision. Yeah. Just ruminate on people driven with purpose, like you mentioned. Uh -huh. All the great products that are being created, the beautiful technology, right? AI is doing so many glorious things. I want to be crystal clear again the technology is not the issue, but there's so many beautiful things it's doing, curing cancer, helping soldiers return from PTSD, uh, war, yeah. PTSD increasing empathy. But where, think about a world where, you know, when you're presented with a cool brand, the question is, can this brand increase your sense of purpose? And then you're going to buy it. You're still going to buy it because it's, but, but the, but the answer is not the short term, like consumer kind of <laughs> dopamine hit alone. It's going to be purpose. And then think about where if our urgency for boardrooms every quarter was a CEO said, listen, if we want to hit our financial numbers, I won't be able to also hit numbers to improve the environment or help kids, young people struggling with mental health, whatever else. Our triple bottom line, in other words, is this okay if this quarter we relax the fiscal and focus on the purpose and think about boardrooms? Because of course they're already there, the enlightened boardrooms that are going to say, yeah, that's great. And think about a world and, and then where some people may not want to do that. And I'm not interested in stick over carrot. But is to say, outside of political ideologies and all that stuff, is there suffering? Is the planet suffering and are people suffering? And think of all the amazing, wonderful, purpose-driven things that can happen when the number one thing is not to focus on exponential growth of fiscal and productivity, but it's about 
purpose. That world is one that I have been actively trying to build for the past number of years of my life. And the work at IEEE they've been doing for years to be a part of that is such an honor. And there's so many people like yourself, like we can imagine all these beautiful things. We can imagine that machines might become conscious and we can go to Mars. Why is it so hard to imagine that we can love other people and improve the planet and ourselves and have worth? Why is it hard? It's because it's really hard to do, but we can do it and it's being built. Well, everyone I meet at the moment, and although we are maybe in a bit of a bubble in New York City, but everyone I meet is talking about purpose and everyone cares about it and everyone wants to see it happen. So all it's going to take is one organization or one innovation that will be that flip. And then you'll suddenly see someone that's not hitting the numbers, but their share price is going up and they're being rewarded and their sales are going up because they're creating products that are embedded with purpose. Yeah. And then share price, I'd love it if the conversation didn't end with share price went up. Yeah. Because who cares? No, end of the day, so it's getting <laughs> short-termers. Let's do the quick fire questions. What principles do you stand by? Uh, curiosity. I think the moment you lose curiosity, arrogance comes in and it's easy to think you know too much. Um, kindness. At the end of the day, I think anything of wisdom comes from a place of humility and kindness. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I watch every kind of dystopian TV show and utopian one, the black mirrors, all that stuff. Um, I read as much as I can. And I often, I really make an effort to read non AI oriented novels. And I love documentaries. I think documentaries and nonfiction books. If I always try to have at least one fiction, one nonfiction book with, with some kind of angle that I haven't thought of before. Okay. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Uh, coming to New York as a young actor was very hard. I left, my mom had just won a battle with cancer. My dad had had an open heart surgery. I left my house in Needham and came to New York with no money, all that stuff. So that was, that was a hard year. Where do you go when you need space to think? Uh, nature. I think uh, that's one thing I realize about the visceral aspect of nature. And Westerners, we tend to think that nature is outside, whereas the Eastern traditions and the indigenous traditions, I'm starting to learn more about that I'm so fond of. We are part of and one with nature. It's not the sort of, you know, kind of funky Western, like, let's put on yoga pants judgment about it. It is a recognition that the only way we'll be sustained is to recognize how central nature is to who we are. Very interesting. You should check out Anahita Mogadan, Mogadan mm. one of our other guests who's doing this practice called contemplative uh, psychology. Um, yeah. I think it is. You get awesome brings, guests. Brings in together <laughs> all the neuroscience, uh, Western uh, psychology, and Eastern traditions as well, and merges them all together in our training practice. She's very interesting. Who are your biggest influencers? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> but uh, that, I mean, the scriptural, yeah. you know, actual... Scripture. Um, um, I play blues music. So BB King, of course, Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan at a very core level of who I am. That music speaks to me at a very deep level. It's also the Mississippi Delta blues player, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee playing harmonica, Sonny Boy Williamson, Jay Giles band, their early stuff, their mm -hmm. harmonica player, Magic Dick. Um, then, um, uh, people like Joey Ito, this guy I mentioned, Constantinos, you know, I think advice I got years ago was work hard to find mentors mm -hmm. at every age of your life. 
because if you peop- if you find people who you say I want to be like that person, you never lose the opportunity to learn and grow. That's nice. I'm going to jump to the impossible question. Uh, what would your advice be to someone that's just about to graduate or go to study that's being t- that's got a dream, a goal, or a grand ambition, but it's been told, forget it, that's impossible? Uh, follow your heart. You know, follow your bliss. To quote, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, Conrad. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm blanking his name, but um, you know, someone told me you can't be successful as an actor. And I had a 15 year career where I got in all three unions. I made a living wage. Um, I met my wife. I got the formative grounding to do the work I'm doing now. So, uh, you know, a lot of times I think people, people's intentions, usually like you say, like, well, their intentions are good. I don't think that's the case. I think the answer has to be, if you aren't, if you're built to do something and it brings you purpose, pursue it with everything you have. That's lovely. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I have to give a lot of credit to my wife, uh, Stacy. She is my best friend for multiple reasons. One of them being that she lives with my crap and will <laughs> challenge me on it. My daughter is similar. She has uh, really helped me with aspects, not just of young people, but uh, LGBTQ issues. Plus. <laughs> yeah, plus, yeah. Uh, meaning where it's tough when you're 50. Sometimes you, like I just turned 50, so you start to realize... The words that I say, I'm biased and it's being interpreted by others and I've hurt them. And by the way, I'm not saying dumb shit. I'm just, I'm saying she is a young person and um, has taught me a great deal. No, I'm with you on that. I, there's, we can get into the whole area of sort of language that is culturally acceptable to now that maybe wasn't even 10 years ago. It's a really bit of a minefield at times, um, particularly being Scottish. And coming from the advertising background where, let's say, cultural sensitivities are not really the, the, the main area of training focus. There's a haggis joke in here somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure it's coming. Um, what's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> it's, 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 I would say it's blues because if I know it's in the right key, I can play harmonica to it. Um, I love um, a lot of like the Frank Sinatra era stuff. And then my dad, as I mentioned, had this beautiful tenor voice. So... Um, Misty was my parents' song. So a lot of times in karaoke, I'll crank up like the kind of classic 40, 50s crooner yeah. type tunes. Yeah. What book do you want us to offer the three listeners that submit the best comment in the comment section? Um, in the AI ethics space, the one that I always recommend is Shannon Valor's book, um, Technology and the Virtues. Mm-hmm. When you get to know um, ethical traditions, like the Western traditions tend to be somewhat individualistic. Eastern is more communal. Virtue ethics is an actual kind of embodiment of a lot of the golden rule, do unto others, be purposeful. And she does an amazing uh, analysis of virtue ethics traditions in light of AI. And she's also now working, um, I forget what she does at Google, and she used to run a major ethics center. She's one of the smartest people in the space in that book, Technology and the Virtues. I should probably ask her to get some kind of percentage because I always... Right. Well, that's the one. Who should we interview next? Oh man, there's so many people. Oh, but you know, the first person that comes to mind, um, Twain. Uh, her first name is Twain, like Mark Twain. Last mm-hmm. name is Lou. Uh, she's from China. I met her at my buddy uh, Tim's uh, conference. Uh, Tim uh, runs this wonderful conference called the House of Beautiful Business in Lisbon. Um, and Tim, uh, uh, I got to speak there last year. And Twain was at the conference. She's from China and she is incredibly smart, like so uber geeky smart. The first time I heard her speak, I, I thought like she was somewhat frenetic, which I can be. 
which is not a bad thing. I was just like, what is she saying? And then what I realized is on Twitter, she's very adamant, which is really important to hear that a lot of Western traditions for ethics that most of the Western world bases stuff on comes from the Greeks, which is great. Mm -hmm. But she points out that pre-Greek is China and that it was in the Greek times that a lot of the, the, the binary aspect of things, code, mm -hmm. right? Pluses and ones come from a Greek tradition, which she says, look, code in that sense is its own bias. Saying that something has a binary one or zero is a bias. And then she has all these great rants about it's very male, yeah. uh, all this stuff. And Confucius has this much, you know, a systems thinking. Anyway, Twain Lu, um, she's just got such a glorious brain and she's just really fun, silly in the best way. And her, her view being Eastern and, and, uh, she's not always friendly to Western ethics, but I think her view is, I'll, I'll go along with that. She's yeah. And I have a, a whole other realm of people I could recommend as well. Okay. Um, jump back to a couple of the other questions. How do you keep up with technology? Crazy question asking you that, but you know. uh, yeah, I think, you know, I subscribe to like 78 newsletters. Um, I do my best to make sure to like read the guardian and uh, the economist. And so like, I don't just stick to like wired or TechCrunch mm -hmm. because I think you really have to ask what are the traditions, uh, or, or, or trends rather that are not just quote tech trends. And then I, I'm blessed because I get to travel all the time with IEEE. And the second you travel, especially internationally, right away, you start to hear like in China, you know, how advanced they are with like payments. Like you never use money in China. Yeah, it's crazy. You just, it's only mm -hmm. um, whatever WeChat. it is. Yeah, uh, WeChat. We, yeah, WeChat, yeah. What's your perspective on failure? I think failure is not taking risks. I think failure, there's way too much pressure. I was talking to someone else about this today. It's very Western to be like, we're going to have this meeting. Here's our agenda. We're going to accomplish this by the end of the meeting and this is going to happen. And if that doesn't happen, it's failure. As compared to just kind of being present. Um, and the, this wonderful woman that we're working with now in the Council on Extended Intelligence named Lily, um, she's working with uh, Otto Scharmer in MIT and they have this thing called the theory of you, which is a beautiful sense of systems thinking, how to sort of be together and sort of see how solutions bubble up to the surface. So I think failure is, especially if someone says, if you try something based on purpose and it doesn't achieve X, you fail. I think the main way we fail is not to take chances and then say, um, can I learn or grow from this? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Well, um, I think we're definitely going to do another interview at some time, but I definitely, I just want to um, acknowledge you, uh, John. First of all, thank you for your time and just acknowledge you for what comes across as passion, compassion, care, and um, just a massive heart. And I think it's really great to have someone on the show like you. So thank you very much for your time. Well, well thank you. I feel deeply honored with this amazing list of guests that you have to be here. And thank you for well, the conversation. Any of the 30 you see on the list you want connected with, we'll, we'll make the connection. Wonderful. That's great. Thank you, John. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. 